Hey everyone, welcome back to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. In today's episode, we'll be discussing all things uranium. That's right, you just heard it right, uranium. I know you're probably thinking, isn't this the wealth and finance and economics show? It still is, but in a moment, you're gonna see just how big an economic impact the element of uranium truly has. My guest today is Mark Chalmers. If you're not familiar, let me give you a quick bio. Mark Chalmers is the president and CEO of Energy Fuels. He brings a wealth of experience in mining and mineral processing to his position. Prior to Energy Fuels, Chalmers was the executive general manager of production for Paladine Energy, where he successfully managed their Langer Heinrich, uh, Nambia, and Kellerica mines in Malawi. Hopefully I'm getting those names right. Chalmers is an expert in what's called in situ recovery or IRS uranium production. Having managed both the Beverly uranium mine owned by General Atomics in Australia and the Highland mine owned by Cameco Corporation here in the US. Additionally, he has consulted several key industry leaders in the uranium supply sector, including BHP, Rio Tinto, and Marabeni. Mark Chalmers holds a Bachelor of Science in Mining Engineering from the University of Arizona and is a registered professional engineer and served as the chair of the Australian Uranium Council for 10 years. He holds dual citizenship in both the US and Australia. Now, just to set the stage before we dive into today's interview, I'd like to provide some background on where uranium fits into the global scene. So the US is the largest producer of nuclear power, almost double that of China, but 24% of our enriched uranium comes from Russia. We have banned Russian oil and natural gas since their invasion of Ukraine, but not uranium. According to the Energy Information Administration, as of 2022, 18% of US energy comes from nuclear sources versus 61% from fossil fuels and 21% from renewables. Now we're gonna dive into where uranium fits into the mix with my conversation with Mark Chalmers. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it, you'll figure it out. Change the only constant. The Kadona Podcast. Mark, how you doing? I'm great, and thanks for having me on, Brian. Yeah, thank you for the time. I'm excited for this conversation because uh, I definitely think it's timely. And, you know, as we're recording this, this interview is on December 15th, 2023, for anyone listening in the future. Mark, why don't we do here more here in the States with uranium? It seems like we're extremely reliant on Russia and other places. Um, but is that something we want to get our hands into, or, or is it something we're better kind of keeping at you know arm's length? Well, I, I think the the main issue um, here in the United States is that there's no successful nuclear fuel cycle, sustainable nuclear fuel cycle in any country without material government support. And if you go back into the '50s, '60s, and '70s, um, the United States. Uh, had nuclear energy, um, you know, as as a priority, and and provided a lot of support on all stages of the nuclear fuel cycle, from mining right on through generating nuclear power. So, so what what's what's happened is, if you want to be a world power in um, nuclear energy, 
you have to provide support. Now, we are the largest consumer of nuclear fuel products in the world, and a lot of that is kind of a hangover from uh, that past support. And when it went away, you started seeing reactors shutting down. You saw uh, enrichment uh, facilities being decommissioned, uh, conversion being shut down, and mines being shut down. So, so it's important if we want to continue to grow power, uh, nuclear power uh, in the country and around the globe, uh, governments have to be supportive. And you know, these, these this recent conference in um, uh, United Arab Emirates is a, is a testament that there seems to be. Uh, renewed appetite uh, for growing nuclear power as our baseload energy and carbon-free energy uh, going forward. Now, when you look at, um, you know, the economics, uh, and I always use this phrase, the world's become addicted to cheap. Uh, and, and it was a priority for the nuclear fuel cycle to, to, to be supported by uh, the Russian government. And, and they've done so, and they've been able to take um, a real uh, lion's uh, uh, role here in nuclear fuel products. So, you know, we, we cannot be addicted to cheap if we want to have uh, independence on things like nuclear fuel products and other things like rivers. And can you give us a little background on why nuclear kind of came to the forefront here in the States and then suddenly we decided to kind of step away from it? it wh- what was some of the background there, why we made that decision? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Unfortunately, the origins of the nuclear uh, fuel cycles, you know, started off from a you know national de- defense perspective in the Cold War, and and then it evolved into um, you know peaceful uses of nuclear power um, in the United States, and then you went through this period of uh, Three Mile Island um, and Chernobyl and uh, Fukushima, and it really took a dent in uh, public opinion and support. Uh, and political support. So, um, you know, it, 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 it really, you know, kind of lost its way um, for a number of years. And people always thought, well, we can fall back on uh, fossil fuels, uh, coal, natural gas and renewables. And now people are seeing that uh, that doesn't appear to be a very a wise um, strategy going forward. And people are also today we have like 50 reactor years um, or 50 years times you know, four or 500 reactors around the world to demonstrate how safe nuclear power is um, as, as an energy source. And that's what I wanted to ask. I mean, if it's a matter of, of public safety, of, of a politician saying, hey, we're going to put this reactor in your next neighborhood, and then you have you know, the, the school and the, the PTA and just neighbors and folks saying, oh, you know, our, well, our kid's going to grow up with four different arms or all this crazy stuff. It, like are the things you mentioned, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, can that still happen? Or, or are there safety mechanisms in place where people could confidently say there's zero chance of a, of a meltdown or these adverse effects that can happen, you know, to any surrounding community? There's no such thing as zero chance on anything, Brian. And but if you look at um, the statistics, you know, take Three Mile Island. You know, nobody was harmed. I mean, they monitored the radiation. There wasn't, you know, any material releases. And and um, you know, and so in the United States, uh, and actually the United States as the largest um, producer of nuclear energy has probably the most enviable safety record of nuclear power in the world. Uh, and then you had um, 
uh, Chernobyl, which was 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 a, a, a definitely a disaster in Russia and Ukraine, and um, and it was a Russian reactor didn't have the right containment regulation protocols and all that, and the world learned from that. Um, you know, when you you go to Fukushima, uh, what people don't understand, or a lot of people don't understand, is what that demonstrated is that it's dangerous living next to the ocean. Uh, with the tsunami that killed, you know, twenty some thousand people in a period of an hour, or you know, less than that, uh, you know, when the wave came in, and still to this day, I don't believe there's been a single death from radiation from Fukushima out there. So, so you know, I think it's the emotion and the concern, but what it does um, display is the fact that these reactors were able to contain, at least with Fukushima. Um, you know, the radiation, a reactor can't blow up like a nuclear bomb because they're using um, fuel that will not, um, you know, that, 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 that it's not going to be a nuclear uh, bomb. So, so, I mean, again, the statistics, we have all these years, all these reactors um, that, that prove the safety of nuclear power. But I think the world is more open now. Um, because they're, you know, they 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 do see, um, uh, you know, global warming uh, or reduction of uh, emissions as a priority, and uh, I think it's more open and there is more of a track record, as I said, over fifty years of how safe nuclear power is. Okay, and if we could maybe just to take a step back, you know, for some of our folks that are listening that are like, man, I, you already lost me. <laughs> Can you just clue in a little bit of the process of how nuclear power is actually generated? And I know in your bio, I mentioned a lot of your expertise in uranium mining, uh, where exactly uranium enters the equation. Can you just maybe summarize it, it kind of from mining to, okay, we've got nuclear energy? Yeah. Well, I mean, what our <laughs> company does is the first stage, which is uh, the uranium mining, uh, where we actually extract the uranium out of the ground. Uh, and we process it or we recover the uranium at our ISR mines uh, and what we, we produce what we call yellow cake. And then that next step, it goes to conversion where it's converted into UF6 gas and then it moves on to enrichment and fuel fabrication. Um, you know, when you put um, a fabricated pellet into a nuclear reactor, um, it's uranium-235 uh, and it's around 5% um, enriched material. And, and then they split the atoms and end up creating heat. And that heat um, drives um, uh, turbines uh, that then drive um, the ability to generate the electricity. And, and, and that's how it moves through. So, okay. so it's, it's a, it, you know, and it's one of the most studied, um, you know, sciences out there in the world. Um, when you look at the nuclear fuel cycle and, and, and whatnot. So, so, I mean, that's basically how it works. Um, and then uh, you have to refuel these reactors um, with the 235. You have to refuel them uh, every year, 18 months. Um, they're now looking at a new fuel called HALU, which, which is a 20% uh, 235 uh, that, that requires less refueling. Uh, but then when you look at the military, like the, the nuclear Navy um, and the uh, nuclear ships and submarines for the reactors there, they use like 90 percent 235 and they have to refuel 
less frequently. And less frequently means they build a submarine and they can fuel it for the life of the submarine of 30, 35 years. Wow. To have a nuclear weapon, and I know I'm j jumping off, uh, you've got to go real high 90s uh, percentile um, to actually end up with uh, weapons grade um, uh, enriched uranium, which is a far, far uh, more difficult process than getting to 5% use in large scale commercial reactors. Okay. And what is the drawback? I know you said you want about, I think you said 20% for what we're using for general purpose and then up towards 90% for like the nuclear Navy and the submarines that can go for the life of it. Why wouldn't we want that higher ratio for just the normal everyday kind of use? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the higher percentage is, is more dangerous. Okay. It's more dangerous. It's more powerful. It's like high octane fuel. Um, and and one, of, one of the advantage of um, nuclear power, commercial nuclear power, is, um, you know, you're, you are at that 5% or 20%. So you're far away from being able to uh, create, uh, you know, the, the, the concentration of 235 for a nuclear weapon. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, a lot of it's, it's about safety. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and if you look at it, and I've always said this for, for years, you know, one of the real advantages of, um, you know, nuclear uh, is that, you know, a terrorist doesn't have the, the, the technology, doesn't have the funding uh, to get to a nuclear weapon. Um, you know, I mean, some countries do, and I'm not saying that that's not uh, a concern, um, but it it is, you know, it, it's it's something that's it's, it's, it's very difficult for, you know, very smaller, smaller organizations. They, they just can't get there. Um, it's just not practical, and they don't have the attention span for that um, or the financing to do that or the technology. Gotcha. And so if I could kind of stay on that for a second, because I know you mentioned like the, the terrorist organizations. And when you hear nuclear, lots of times people are thinking, oh, what's going on in Iran that we don't want them to become nuclear. So are you saying like they they may have the capability to have a nuclear reactor, but they can't go to so advanced to have that concentration to make weapon out of yeah, it? Yeah. And, and I'm when it comes to, you know, what Iran's doing in some of these countries, what their capabilities or knowledge or capacity you know, I'm I'm not an expert in that area, Brian. But but I, I it is very very difficult uh, to get to a nuclear weapon, and it's very expensive, and it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of technology. Yes, there are countries that have got there, um, and um, but as I'm saying, it is um, you know one of the deterrents uh, in the whole nuclear fuel cycle to going to a weapon is it's so difficult, so expensive um, to get there. And when you do get there, is it a process that's like easily replicated? Like, is that why we have so many nukes out there is like, okay, when we got there, now we can just keep pressing that again and again? Or is it always a difficult, lengthy, costly process every time? Yeah, like, again, you're, you're getting me into areas on exactly how to make <laughs> nuclear weapons. And it's not my area of expertise, but... It, not, 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 nothing. Look at first of all, nothing's easier in the nuclear fuel cycle. You have to have the experience and capabilities and knowledge and all that. So, um, but yeah, once you have the technology, once you have the infrastructure, um, you know, it, it, it's 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 you know, you, you you have the capability to do that. So, um, mm -hmm. but but right now, I mean, I I don't, you know, and again, I'm you're, you're going in areas I don't know, but you know, we we've, we've been. De-enriching, you know, um, um, you know, 
nuclear weapons into uh, electric power for many years now, and, and a lot of that has stopped. But, um, you know, I mean, nuclear power, the future of nuclear power is generating uh, carbon-free base load energy mm-hmm. um, look into the future. So, um, you know, if you, if you want to get into the specifics of, um, you know, nuclear weaponry, um, you know, maybe that's a subject of another one of your podcasts. Yep. No, fair enough. And we won't hold you to that. And so to kind of bring it back to to more of the general purpose of clean energy, as we look at the global stage and we see apparently there's a push now for the U.S. to get better at this, to reshore some of this, where in that process that you mentioned a moment ago of the mining, the conversion, the building, the infrastructure, like if you could kind of grade the U.S. right now, where are we good? Where are we just naturally excelling, whether it's because we do have the mineral or where where do we need to step our game up where, you know, we're too reliant on other countries like Russia? Well, we're starting from a pretty, pretty flat start. Um, we used to be the largest producer of uranium uh, in the world uh, back in like this late 70s, 1980 time period, uh, we were mining around 40, 45 million pounds of uranium per year. Our current consumption of nuclear fuel products is about 50 million pounds per year. And um, over uh, even the last, um, say, 10 or 15 years, the U.S. has has mined four to five million pounds per year. So, you know, like 10% of our requirements was actually mined. Now, we've got um, Convertine, um, uh, Metropolis for conversion. And, um, that was shut down for a number of years. It's just restarted and restarting. So we do have a conversion plant to make the UF6. Um, so that's getting up and running. Uh, we, we, we decommissioned all of our enrichment capacity, even though there is, um, a foreign owned Urenco in New Mexico for enriching fuel. Um, so, um, you know, and, and, and there's there's a, a number of initiatives looking at uh, being able to enrich to make this HALU fuel, which is this 20 percent 235 um, uh, in the United States with Centris X Energy, BWXT uh, and Urenco. So so what what happens is, you know, we do not have, um, you know, uh, or or if we, we, we do through through other you know, owned by other countries in the U.S., uh, you know, have just this limited capacity. Now, we, we do have, you know, access to allies' um, capabilities, particularly in places like Canada, U.K., and France. And, th- and that's basically, you know, how the nuclear fuel cycle is made up. But in addition, a lot of that capability is in, 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 in Russia. So, so how would I rate uh, our, uh, our our abilities right now, uh, I'd rate them very low. Um, of what scale? You know, one to ten. I, I don't know, but it would be very low on that scale. Um, but we do have the knowledge, and we've got to get the infrastructure back in place, and that will take um, a number of years, ten to fifteen years, uh, to be fully wow. integrated, um, and and a lot of money, a lot of investment. Wow. And I appreciate kind of the honest uh, grading there. So you say 10 to 15 years to establish that. I mean, in the scheme of things, that seems like a, it, some people might say, oh, that's a blink of an eye. You know, others, 10, 15 years feels like a lifetime away. 
why why is it so long is it just the process of going from like a to z or like how what is that 10 to 15 year timeline made up of well look a lot of it is just getting sites and permits and uh, you know procurement building um, expertise uh, funding arranged uh, you know it i mean in, in today's world um, you know to get a, a mine uh, started um, in in the united states uh, can take 10 or 15 years at, at least five or six years um, so it just takes a long time uh, to do things nowadays if you do an environmental mm-hmm. impact statements if you're you know, doing public comment, um, if there's litigation, you know, it's, um, it, it's, it doesn't happen quickly. Would you say that's one of the biggest hurdles? Cause that's a lot of the criticism I hear is like, here we are in America trying to be so clean, but it's almost the r- regulations and rules to be clean that sometimes prevent us from getting there. Um, is that that really it? It sounds like regulation and, and kind of playing by the rules is what makes it so cumbersome. Yeah. But regulation, good regulation is 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 necessary. You know, I mean, if you look back um, um, in mining, I mean, not just uranium mining back in the 50s and 60s, there wasn't really any regulation. There wasn't any real process to evaluate projects and to figure out how they're going to be ultimately reclaimed and whatnot. So. So you 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 do need regulation, um, but you know you need regulation that doesn't get encumbered in um, and, and 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 hobbled in, in too many different ways uh, where it doesn't add value. So uh, you know I find and and I've got um, I'm an Australian citizen and I'm a, um, a U.S. citizen and uh, you know the U.S. is so litigious when it comes to using the legal system to to challenge and block um, all sorts of things. All right. And um, and, you know, you, you, you see that used as just a tool to to obstruct progress. And when I go to and live in uh, Australia, uh, they have a very simple concept. It's called if you file a lawsuit to stop something, if you lose that lawsuit, you pay the legal fees of the other party. OK, so if you challenge somebody. And that doesn't happen in the United States. It's called, you know, loser pays. And I, I think that would go a long ways um, <laughs> in the United States for multiple lawsuits, appeals and whatnot to speed up the process. Got it. And, and so it's not a matter of us not having uranium here. Like, do, are you aware of like there's enough sites actually here in the States to effectively mine this in supply ourselves or is that a bit of an unknown of like how much we actually have no we're blessed with a lot of uranium i mean a lot of the deposits in the united states are higher costs than some of the deposits in canada or australia or even kazakhstan um and in part of the um you know when i said this addicted to cheap you know this whole focus on globalization. It was like, go out and, and it didn't matter if it was nuclear fuel products. Um, it was any kind of products. Go to whatever country could do it for the cheapest. And that's where the market should settle out. Um, well, I understand that in, uh, you know, some things, but but you also got to look at things that your country is is very dependent on and really try to figure out which things don't you want to be totally dependent on. And 
And I think that's what's really kind of happened in the nuclear fuel cycle is people um, thought, well, they could go out to, um, you know, Russia and get all the products that they needed and that there would never be something like the uh, Russian-Ukraine conflict um, in the future. And, and I've even had utilities tell me, um, even as recently as, say, five or six years ago, that they wouldn't pay. And, and utilities are my friends, but I've had uh, a, an extra cent for um, U.S. Uh, nuclear fuel products over, you know, Russian uh, provided nuclear fuel products. So that has changed. People have realized that that plan um, doesn't make sense, particularly with the geopolitical tensions that we're seeing around the world. Um, and and I think it's a, a it's 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 a it's a lesson that's learned that should not be forgotten. No, that's well said. And so I know you've done a, a ton of travel in your career. Um, you know, and you could clue us into some of it. I know before we hopped on today, you were telling me a little bit of it. Have you seen any particular country? You just mentioned Australia, their legal system that you like. Have you seen any particular country that you would say, you know, they're doing it right? Like we could almost kind of model what we're trying to now adopt if we could just do it like this other country where amid all your travels, there was a place you really enjoyed working there and felt like it was more efficient. Yeah. Well, in my travels, I find that no country has it perfect, right? There, there's, okay. there's pluses and minuses. Um, you know, I think that, I mean, take Australia. Australia is a um, um, a mining country and um, is dependent on natural resources. And I chaired the Australian government, what they call the Uranium Council, for 10 years. Uh, but not all places in Australia are really that mining friendly. Uh, or for things particularly like mining of uranium. Like, um, you know, it's kind of like the United States. There's a lot of states and there's not so many states in in Australia, but some jurisdictions are more favorable for business um, than others. And like South Australia is very pro-uranium uh, mining, um, but they're not pro-nuclear power. Uh, you go to places like Victoria and uh, Australia and they... Um, uh, are like anti-uranium um, mine development. So, um, you know, from a mining perspective, I like parts of Australia uh, better for the mining of uranium, but not other steps to the nuclear fuel process, okay? Um, you go to some countries like Namibia, I find is a very favorable jurisdiction for uranium mining, but they don't go any further than that. Um, you know, you look at France um, um, in the UK and Canada, in the United States, um, and in each of them, um, have places you can mine uranium, or you can convert, uh, or you can enrich. Um, and so it's really kind of a, a menagerie of what you need to do, where you need to do it. Now, in a place like Russia, um, where it is um, a national priority to 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 support the nuclear fuel cycle, you can mine, you can convert, you can enrich. Um, you know, and, 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 and it's, 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 it's fully accepted. The same thing in China. Um, but the China doesn't have a lot of the uranium resources. So, so they go out and secure their uranium in other countries. So, you know, I, I don't see, I mean, if, if there's any country that is the most integrated, I would say it is Russia and it is China. Uh, even though both of them 
um, are a bit are limited on the natural resources and they have to go to other countries like Kazakhstan or Africa, the African continent to supply their molecules for their, their, their supply chain. Please excuse this brief interruption as I'd like to remind everyone to go check out my new book titled, What Should I Do With My Money? Economic Insights to Build Wealth Amid Chaos. It's available in Kindle, audiobook, and paperback wherever books are sold. In it, I explore nine economic domains affecting the world today. One of those is the environment. And within that chapter, if you're enjoying my interview so far with Mark, you'll learn a lot about where nuclear energy fits into the mix for the future and the economic impact that it can have for our country and abroad. I think you'll find a lot in that chapter to kind of build on the financial aspect of today's interview. But enough of the commercial, back to my conversation with Mark Chalmers. Yeah, and I mean, hearing that is somewhat worrisome because obviously Russia and China aren't exactly our best friends on the block. Um, and it sounds like from what you're saying, we are a little bit behind the eight ball where for them, it's a national priority. Uh, China, you know, you can read a lot about the Belt and Road Initiative and these investments they've made all around the world that are really based on natural resources um, that maybe we're not doing to that extent. You know, I guess one of the questions I want to ask you is because we're not so just strictly driven by the government where the government can snap their fingers and say, this is it, all hands on deck. We're more of a capitalist society versus those guys. Is this whole process you're describing, is it profitable? Is it something that investors can hear about and say, hey, this is where I want to put my money? Or is it just like investing in airlines where it's just kind of there in good years, bad years, but no real trajectory? Yeah. Well, and I think you got to look at each individual step. Um, and But you also got to go back to where I started this conversation. There is no successful nuclear fuel cycle without a level of government support because in mm. this whole historically it needed some government assistance um in all of these steps okay and so you know it, it has been um you know challenged you know from if, if it was if it was profitable you wouldn't need government support okay mm -hmm. at any level but you you and, 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 and certainly nobody wants to subsidize, um, you know, all aspects. They want the, the free market to sort out. And so you want to you want to uh, provide the support that is it is as profitable as it can be in all these steps um, for a sustainable outcome uh, at the lowest possible cost. But the the you know, if you start looking at, you know, renewables and the support that they've gotten, the credits and tax credits, and there's different ways to get there, you know, even just on things like how you prioritize, um, you know, where you're getting your power. You know, there's a number of things that, that for example, um, you know, if you penalize baseload energy because you're going to allow the wind generators to generate, whenever the wind's blowing, they get that credit and you know, it, 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 there's a number of ways that you level the playing field. And nuclear has been hobbled for a number of, you know, a decade or two or three um, because it's have to compete on an unfair, unlevel playing ground with some of these other energy sources. 
And to that point, like I think a lot of people hear clean energy, go green, you know, this whole movement, and they think of wind turbines, they think of solar panels on your roof, or they think of driving a Tesla, but you don't hear nuclear. You know, is there is there just a, a general lack of education of the cleanliness of nuclear and that maybe that should be kind of brought up in the same conversation? Yeah, and it's called base load and clean, all right? 24-7, when it's cold out, when it's hot out, nuclear power. You know, you, you, you've got these, you know, low capacity factors on wind and solar that needs a backup. And when you need the backup, you need the backup. And the problem is that if you don't have the backup, mission control, you have a problem. Now, I think that the public is becoming um, more informed um, on the mix. And it's not about any one source of energy being um, the answer. It's the mix of the alternatives that mm -hmm. put together the best outcome for whatever region you are in the country or in the world. You know, if you have hydropower, you use hydropower, right? Now, hydropower isn't with zero risk either because sometimes the dams fail, right? So, but if you have hydropower, that's clean energy. Some people would argue that it dams up a river and that's not good. Um, you know, there's trade-offs on all this stuff. So I think that... Um, you know, the support from people like Bill Gates with TerraPower, um, I think the support of another environmentalist that claim that nuclear power is necessary piece to the puzzle going forward, that's helping people understand uh, the, 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 the power of nuclear power going forward at reducing carbon emissions. And so do you think there's, I like that idea that there's got to be a mix. It's not just one over the other. Um, you know, like I had mentioned in our introduction, you know, the latest data shows about 18% of our energy comes from nuclear, 61% still from fossil fuels and 21% renewables. And I think if you just turn on the news, the message you hear is we need to get that 61% fossil fuels to zero, and we won't stop until we get to zero. What do you think realistically is a good mix? Like what, what should we really try and target for a healthy economy and a healthy environment? Yeah. Well, that 18 or 20%, depending on whose statistics of nuclear power, is already about 50% of the carbon-free energy electricity in the United States. So 50%. So if you say, oh, we don't need nuclear, well, there goes 50% of your carbon-free mm -hmm. energy right there. So there is no credible plan to reduce carbon emissions in the world without nuclear power playing a major role. And people must understand that. They yeah. must understand that. And if they don't understand it, the math doesn't work. And, um, and I think that's one of the most powerful arguments for nuclear power. And in, in addition to um, you know, the safety record, um, but also you know, as we get these nuclear technologies further developed, we've, we've also got to always be looking at the most economic capital and operating cost solutions going forward too with nuclear power. So, um, you know, it's, it's a number of pieces. I um, grew up as a son of a uh, utility executive 
And he used to always drill into me. It's the mix of those energy sources and the, and the locations and the populations and all those things have to take into consideration when you come up with the optimal outcome um, wherever you're at um, in both the United States or the world. Yeah, I think, you know, we've seen the over-reliance on anything is a, a very clear danger, especially when, you know, we're reliant on some of these other countries for particular sources of energy. So, you know, it sounds like there, there's obviously been the huge push between clean energy where people are just defining it, like I said, to the wind, solar, et cetera. But I think one of the things that's helped that, you know, if people look at Tesla maybe as the model and now EVs through every manufacturer really ramping up is that there has been huge government support and that support's not only gone to the company, but it's also going to the end user, to the citizen that's saying, oh, I got a tax credit this year because I bought an EV made in America. Is there something on the nuclear side where, you know, Jack and Jill down the street can say, hey, we went nuclear. Is there anything that kind of granular or is it always going to be between the government and then this big company that maybe we're not that familiar with? Yeah, I don't really know off the top of my head if is if there is anything like that. But you know, you're seeing things like the the IRA. Um, you know, you're seeing support for the government to keep the reactors operating. Uh, you know, you're seeing the government. Uh, you know, they 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 bought uranium uh, earlier this year from uranium miners. Uh, that's the first time they've done that in probably 50 years. Uh, they're providing support for. Um, enrichment and HALU in particular. Um, so, you know, they're starting to um, provide uh, support in different ways. Um, in in the, the mining side of things, it's, it's very modest, but yet you're seeing um, increased bipartisan support um, right now uh, in the House and Senate um, when it comes to reducing dependency uh, on primarily Russia uh, and reestablish those, um, those capabilities. But I think that, you know, yeah, the government has a lot of strings that they can pull like they've done for uh, wind and solar and electric vehicles, tax credits and whatnot um, that can assist and level the playing field and provide incentives for people, um, you know, to either appreciate or utilize more of one source over the other. So, um but yeah, it's. I think it's 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 work in progress. I think one of the most important things is bipartisan support politically, um, and certainly public support, uh, because when you don't have those, uh, it's hard to move the football. Got it. Understood. And if we could pivot a little bit here, I know you're you're on a busy schedule, and I, I want to ask you a little bit about yourself and your company. So, energy fuels. I mean, you're at the forefront of this conversation. What are some of the things you guys have going on right now, if you could share with us, you know, whatever might be public as far as kind of new innovations or projects that, uh, you know, you're helping to kind of, again, push the ball forward a bit? Yeah, well, um, I've been in the uranium space for 48 years. Um, our company is first and foremost a uranium miner, um, and we have a long history. Our assets have a long history of that um, we're restarting. Uh, three or four of our um, uranium mines, and and uh, we have people uh, working at those mines right now. And commercially, we'll be commercially producing uranium uh, early in 2024. Uh, and that 
uranium will be processed at our White Mesa mill uh, and will fill. Um, we have three uh, long-term uranium contracts with two nuclear utilities uh, in the United States. So we're turning the flywheel on getting our uranium production uh, reestablished. We've been the largest uh, producer of uh, uranium uh, in the United States. We produce you know, small quantities in the scheme of things. 68% of the uranium produced in the United States in the last five years. Um, and we're getting that flywheel going um, to start uh, bringing back the, the, and increasing production capabilities in the United States at the very front end, which is the uranium mining side of things. We also have very aggressive plans on um, processing uh, and securing long-term supplies of rare earths used for the high-efficiency electric motors used in electric vehicles, uh, as well as in wind turbines and refrigeration units. So we're diversified more than others, but our company is focused on the elements required uh, for the energy transition. So it, we are a very um, uh, aggressive and not reckless of company publicly traded focus in those areas. So you talked a lot about the, the, the process of mining the uranium and that we need to step it up here in America. Do, if you'd happen to know, do we export any of this or is this something where if we kind of grow it and mine it, it stays here? Yeah, it, most of it stays here. Um, I mean, we do do some conversion in Canada uh, and in France. Um, you know, so most of it stays here. Some of it may go offshore to to Europe and, and, and whatnot. Um, so, but yeah, we, we, we it, our industry is so small that there's not a lot to spread around. Um, and, you know, but we do certainly do work in, with, with, um, with the Canadians, um, with the Australians, with the UK, with France. Um, so, yeah, I'd just say that most of it stays here, but but not all. Yep. Um, it, in, in a lot of enrichment, like I said, you know, 25% of the enriched uranium that we, we use in the United States right now still comes from Russia. When you were a kid, could you ever foresee this, that your future was going to be in mining uranium? Yeah. Well, I knew nothing about it until I got a job <laughs> when I was 18 years old as a uranium miner, um, just out of high school. I never thought that after all these years, I would still be doing what I love um, and believe is a very material contribution um, on all the things we've discussed on this show, uh, particularly with nuclear power, uh, reducing carbon emissions. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, uh, it's been a, 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 a very interesting career, um, and it's and I've always loved it, uh, but I never thought that I'd be doing it um, like I have been for all these years. Uh, and the first day I went to work uh, in an underground uranium mine, I fell in love with this space, and I've, I've, I've been in love with it ever since. So, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's been a wild ride all over the world. I've mined all over the world. And um, I would like to think that most people who know me know that I have um, produced a lot of uranium from a lot of deposits, um, and I'm looking forward to doing that for years to come. That's great. And, and just last piece of advice I'd like to ask you for is 
uh, for a young professional or, or maybe a college student out there uh, that says, wow, this really interests me. I understand that the future of clean energy or a big part of it is certainly nuclear. What should they be looking for? Is there something further than the study of uranium? Like, do you have any idea on the tea leaves of what might be next up or what they should study? Yeah, I think um, when I graduated in 1980 as a uh, mining engineer, uh, you know, people focused on things like copper and coal and, and, and uranium at that time, gold, um, nickel, um, you know, those elements. And today, particularly over the last five, 10 years, and you look at the periodic table, you've got lithium, you've got the rare earths, you've got graphite, you've got cobalt, um, helium, um, uranium, you know, you've got all these elements that are getting um, significant attention for uh, decarbonization and electrification. So my advice to a geologist, a process engineer, a metallurgist, mining engineer, is there's a new world out there in the energy transition. And I would say grab it, grab it and make a career out of it because I think it's really the future. And um, so I think it's an exciting time for people that are looking at going down a career path um, in natural resources, uh, particularly in energy transition elements. No, that's a great point. I think that's a great piece of advice there. Uh, anything else, Mark, that you'd like to leave our listeners with that um, you've been wanting to get off your chest or just that we should know about the industry and the type of work that you do? Yeah, I think, I think that what people need to really, again, uh, comprehend is that, you know, we'd be, we've over-globalized. And we need to deglobalize in certain areas, um, which areas can be a hard, difficult line to figure out which ones need to be deglobalized to a certain extent uh, than others. But, you know, if you want to be independent um, on some of these things, like particularly our, our, our fuel sources, uh, our ability to uh, improve electrification, uh, you have to make it a priority, um, not um, just with lip service, but you've got to make it a priority that you need to be able to go back and mine those um, elements in the United States or with our allies. But you can't just ban mining in the United States on all these elements and be uh, dependent on all these other countries to get there and be fully independent. So I just think responsible uh, development um, going forward is the key. And um, and people just need to understand that if you don't um, cut down a tree in the United States, they're going to cut down a tree somewhere else. And this is an example to build that house that you want to build. And um, the, the, the way we operate uh, in the United States are the highest standards out there. And, and keep in mind um, and from a holistic perspective on the fact from the beginning of the cycle to the end, uh, you know, where's the best place to do that? And, and, and nine times out of 10, it's in the United States of America. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for the time, Mark. This was uh, extremely interesting. I found it fascinating, this this whole study of uranium and what it means to our world, to our environment, and to the economy. Um, I don't think anyone can turn a blind eye to it. So thank you for your time today, Mark. Thank you, Brian. Yep. And everyone, thank you for tuning in. Wherever you're listening or watching, please subscribe, leave us a review, and we will see you next time.
This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. Phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.